Everything is going to change about how we work, and that change is going to start here today. That's, those words were uttered back in 2006 at a gathering in a place called Kenner, Louisiana. It was a gathering of about 1,000 builders after, in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. The governor of the, uh, of the state and the mayor of New Orleans had uh, come together and introduced this representative from the uh, Department of House, Housing and Urban Development. And he got up and gave a rousing speech about how help was coming to New Orleans. He promised $8 billion worth of investment to rebuild the city. He promised that the red tape would be cut away, that they wouldn't just tear down and build new things, that they, they would invest in the structures that were there and revitalize this community. His list of promises went on and on until at the very end, he even promised them a free lunch. He said, if you hang around long enough, there'll be a bus to pick you all up and take you to a site where you'll see all this happen. Well, that should have been the first clue that maybe they were being sold a bill of goods because as you might guess, the bus never showed up and neither did the $8 billion. Later on, someone got around to actually calling the Department of Housing and Urban Development and asking about this man. He said his name was Rene Oswin. The reporter, when asked about the things that Renee Oswin said, got this response. Who in the world is Renee Oswin? Turned out they got duped. An imposter had frauded his way up to the podium, taken even the governor and the mayor for a ride, and promised the, promised the world, and it could deliver on none of it. Now, you can say what you want. You can promise what you want. But if you do not have the authority to bring those promises to pass, well, your words are worth nothing. You can understand then why people would be mistrustful about Jesus, can't you? I mean, think about the things that Jesus claims for himself. Last week we saw Jesus stand up in front of a group of religious people and claim the very authority to work on Sabbath like God the Father does. As one rabbi is recorded of saying, who in the world does he think he is? Well, this Sunday and the next Sunday, from John chapter 5, we'll see exactly who Jesus thinks he is. We'll examine some astonishing claims that Jesus makes about himself. Claims that only are any good to us if he has the authority to back them up. This morning, we'll look at three of those claims from John 5, 19 through 29. Those claims will show us the unique authority he claims comes from his relationship to his heavenly father. First, we'll see the claim to unity in work and purpose with his heavenly father in verses 19 through 20. Then in 21 through 25, we'll see his claim to have the power to grant spiritual life. And then finally, most astonishingly of all, in 26 through 29, we will see Jesus Claim the right to judge the world. And friends, all of this, if Jesus is not who he says he is, then all these claims account for nothing. Let's begin in verses 19 through 20. Jesus claims unity of work and purpose with his Father. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. 
For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Remember that what kicked off this whole dispute was Jesus claiming that the Father God was his own Father. He referred to him as my Father. And Jesus claimed that just like the Father continues to work, even above the Sabbath rules, that he too has that same authority. Well, now Jesus is about to clear up a number of misconceptions that good religious Jews in his day might have had to that claim. You see, they might have understood Jesus to be claiming that he was another God alongside God the Father, that there are now two gods. Now, if you were a religious Jew, you were a dyed-in-the-wool, rightful monotheist. That means you understood that there was only one true God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. They don't worship multiple gods like the pagans. That's one of the differentiating marks between God's people and the world around them. So you can understand how someone hears Jesus' claim to be able to have the authority of God the Father, and they might immediately think, this is blasphemy. But what Jesus shows us is that they understood part of what he was saying, but they certainly didn't understand the substance of it. He says first, to, to understand what he's saying, you have to understand his relationship to his heavenly Father. He says it's a bit like how an ancient father would train his son in whatever field that father worked in. Now, fathers and sons related to each other very differently back then than they do today. Today, we have colleges, we have freedom of travel and opportunities such that very few sons end up doing the same thing that their fathers do. Now, my dad spent his whole working life as an airline pilot. Um, His dad before him, he was not an airline pilot. He sold insurance. I do not, you don't want me to be the pilot of any plane you're on, trust me. Uh, and, And that's the case for most of us. If we did a show of hands, very few of us would be doing the same things that our fathers did. But consider what it was like 2,000 years ago. If you were born into a family with someone who knew how to work with metal, then you were a metal worker. You were the Smith's son. If you were born into the baker's family, then you were the baker's son. You would spend time apprenticing with your father. He would teach you tricks of the trade. You would learn the inner secrets and recipes. You, You didn't go off to college. You learned from your father. Well, Jesus takes these same categories and he says, uh, what I am doing is just what my heavenly father has taught me. He says, I do nothing of my own, but only what I see my father doing. And he says it positively, whatever the father does, the son does likewise. In other words, there's a, an emulation going on. Jesus is seeing what his heavenly father does, and he is doing nothing less and nothing more than that very thing. Now, he tells us why it is that the Heavenly Father would do this. It's because their relationship is one of love. Look with me at verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Now, this is a theme John has already established back in chapter 1 and in chapter 3, that the Father loves the Son. That there was never a time when the father did not love the son and the son was not pleasing to the father. That as we get a peek behind the curtain to eternity past, to how God has always existed, that there was a community within the one person of God, within the the persons of the father and son and spirit. 
that that loving relationship between the persons of what we call the Trinity spilled over even into the creation itself. Why is it that Jesus has authority? Well, it's because he and the Father are perfectly united. Uh, Now notice what this means. It means there will never be a time where Jesus and his Father are out of sync. You don't ever have to worry about a time where Jesus will want to do something, but his Father will, will vote the other way. You never have to worry about Jesus being a loose cannon, making promises that his father's going to overrule him on. The point here is the father and the son have unity to everything they do and even everything they desire to do. Jesus is a perfect son. A perfect son that always pleases his father. Now friends, realize how tightly Jesus puts these parameters here. If Jesus were to claim, for instance, that he were to have the authority of the Father, but he were to stop there, we might be forgiven thinking there's some sort of competition happening within the Godhead. And yet by using this father-son relationship and, and teasing it out the way he does, he makes it clear. The Father and the Son are on one page. They're of one accord. They work as one And one day, Jesus will even utter those words, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, I, I recognize that the Trinity and doctrines like it, that, that this is the deep end of the theological pool. So this morning and next Sunday, it's okay if your head hurts a little bit when you go home. Uh, if you smell a little bit of smoke coming out of your neighbor's ear, that's fine. Uh, the Bible can be clear enough on the basics that you need to believe in order to be saved and yet have a depth to it that even if you spend your entire life, you will never fully grasp. What we are seeing here are one of the treasures in God's word. A revelation of what God is like, a revelation even greater than what God's people had in the Old Testament. That this God lives as three in one in what we call the Trinity. Now, it's not just this relationship that's important and What's also important is what this relationship grants, and that's what the next two points will show us. The first of which, in 21 through 25, is not just that Jesus has this unity of work and purpose with the Father, it's that he claims to have the power to grant spiritual life. Look with me in verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life, To whom he will. Now, Jesus just got done doing an incredible miracle, healing a man that had been paralyzed for a lifetime, 38 years. And just with a word, Jesus makes this man whole. But Jesus says that there is something even greater than bringing healing to a body that is raising someone from death to life. Now, if you know your Old Testament well, you'll know that there are examples of God raising the dead to life. Indeed, as it was confessed by kings and prophets, who can raise to life but God alone? You can think of the prophet Elijah as he went to a widow who lost her son and how he was the instrument God used to bring that boy back to life. But if you remember that story back in 1 Kings 17 rightly, Elijah didn't just show up and say, hey, kid, get up of his own authority. No, Elijah prayed. He pleaded. 
He threw himself on the boy to show his submission to God, and God saw fit to answer his prayer. As important as Elijah was, Elijah was just an instrument. But look what Jesus claims for himself. As the Father has the power and authority to raise the dead to life, Jesus has the authority to give life to whomever he wills. Do you you ever think about what happens when someone comes to Christ in these terms? That person has gone from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive because Jesus wanted it to happen. Friends, that's what that verse teaches. It teaches that there is no one else that has authority to, to take a dead person spiritually and make them spiritually alive except Jesus. Now again, this is all framed by this relationship between the Father and the Son that was already established. Jesus is not granting spiritual life to anyone that the Father does not want to come to spiritual life. When we get to John 6, we'll see this very dynamic teased out. And yet, friends, we need to hear today, we desperately need to hear that the Son has the authority to grant life to whomever he wants. Uh, Maybe you're here this morning, And you have someone in your family you have been praying intently for. Maybe even you've been doing everything you can come up with to try and help them to understand who Jesus is and to find the new life that could be theirs in Christ. Friend, you need to be reminded that Jesus and Jesus only has the authority to grant someone eternal life. As much as we use our best arguments, as much as we try to be the best representatives of his that we can be, As much as we pray and we pray consistently and persistently for someone to come to Christ, friends, ultimately it is in the hands of Jesus himself. Will someone come to him? Only he has the authority to raise the life. That's an important thing for us to remember. It's also important for us to remember how he brings people to life. That's uh, balanced to this first plank. We see in verses 24 through 25 how he does that. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Don't worry, we're not forgetting about the two verses I skipped. We'll come back to them in our next point. But I want to show you here the way that Jesus grants spiritual life to people. How does it happen? As we've seen over and over again in John's gospel, it is through hearing and believing the word of Christ. Jesus here uses two short statements here, both of them framed by this truly, truly, a way of saying Listen up to what I'm saying. This is very important and this is surely true. One of them has to do with how we are right before God. You might say it has to do with our justification. And the other has to do with how we experience the new life in Jesus. The first phrase of verse 24, it tells us that anyone who hears this word of Christ and believes will never enter into judgment. Now the way that's written You'll never enter into judgment. It's pointing forward to the fact that there is a judgment coming, and yet that there is something that is happening here and now in a definitive sense. 
Then when someone hears the word of Christ, you might say the gospel, when they put their trust in Jesus, that in that moment they pass from death to life and there will never be condemnation before the throne of God when they stand and give an account one day. This is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. This is saying that when someone believes in Christ that it really happens. They are truly declared righteous and free from their sin now and forever. The second thing, though, is equally important. Because it's not just that we're selling fire insurance, how how to get out of jail free on the last day when we talk about the gospel of Jesus. No, we also need to know that we need to be brought back to spiritual life. That's what verse 25 is about. That there's an hour coming and is now here. In other words, this is in the here and now that the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. How is it that someone comes to spiritual life, friends? How is it that someone goes from a God-hater to a God-lover? It happens through the word of Jesus, through the gospel message itself. Now, I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of this regularly. It's easy for me to start thinking that if I just love people well enough, if I just have all the right anticipated answers to their questions, that I'll just be able to be winsome enough and convincing enough and people will come to Jesus just by talking with me. Friends, God is kind to give me failure regularly in my evangelistic enterprises to make sure that 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 thought doesn't sink too deeply. And yet if I paid more attention to the word, I would know that even before I found out by experience. The thing that saves people is the gospel message itself. Maybe you've had this experience in your life. You've seen God miraculously work, maybe even just a Bible verse, maybe even just a a little part of the gospel message into someone's heart and mind in a way that they just can't stop thinking about it until one day they actually become a Christian themselves. You know, the implications for this are pretty simple. If what saves us is the word of Christ, then in our evangelism, we need to make sure we actually speak the word of Christ. It's not enough to just be a good neighbor and a nice person and at the end just mention, oh, by the way, I'm a Christian. At some point or the other, we have to get around to telling people about the Jesus who claims the authority over their very lives and souls. That doesn't mean you lead with hell. It doesn't mean you lead with substitutionary atonement. But it does mean at some point or the other, friend, you have to be bold enough to tell them the truth of who Jesus claims to be. Now, friends, I'm very encouraged by what I hear from you as you tell me about your efforts to reach your neighbors and your family members. I just want to encourage you as your pastor to keep pressing forward boldly with the the word of Christ. You've been given the instrument that God has chosen to bring people from death to life. It may not feel like it in the moment, especially when someone rejects what you've given them. And yet, friend, that is the very foolishness that God uses to save souls. Don't be discouraged. Keep pressing forward. Jesus and Jesus alone has the authority to raise the spiritual life. Let's also realize if Jesus claims the sole authority to raise the spiritual life, that means we don't need to worry that we need advice from anyone else. As wonderful as other people may be with self-help type thoughts or philosophies, as much as you might glean from someone on TV, Dr. Phil can never save your soul. 
but Jesus can. See, this sort of a claim puts to bed the thought that Jesus is just another moral teacher. If he claims to have sole authority to bring someone from death to life, he claims something no one else can lay hold to. Jesus here makes yet another astonishing claim. He has the authority to bring the dead to life spiritually. And yet that claim will be overshadowed by even one more astonishing claim. Like a wonderful artist, Jesus gave us just a hint of foreshadowing as he said these words of the greatest of these claims that he's building to, which is found in 26 through 29. Not just the authority to grant spiritual life, but the authority to grant eternal life. Jesus claims the authority to judge the world. Verse 26, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, in hours, I'm sorry, 25, 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Now, 20, verse 26 is one of those verses that theologians have been turning over and wrestling over and spilling ink over for hundreds and hundreds of years. It is a verse written with such precision that just a little lack of care, and frankly, you end up as a heretic. If this verse said, the Father has life in himself, and he has granted the Son life, then in that case, the Jehovah's Witnesses would be right. It would be teaching that the Father is the self-existent God, the one, the source of all life, and that he has created a creature that he has granted life to. That person would be Jesus. You're a friendly Jehovah's Witness that might come to your door. They believe Jesus is Michael the archangel. He is the supreme created being, and yet he is not God. He is a step below God. If the verse said, God has granted the Son life, that's what it would be saying. If on the other hand, it said the Father has life in himself and the Son has life in himself, it would, the, your Mormon friend would be right. See, the Mormons think that there is not just one God, that there is actually an infinite number of gods. That Jesus is a, of the same species of the Father. He is deity. And in some sense that there are an infinite number of possible gods that could exist. If the claim here was Jesus has the same life in himself as the Father, then that, that would be what this is teaching. Two gods, two or more. But that's not what the verse says. The verse says, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Now, this is undoubtedly one of the parts of the Bible that gets right to the border of what we can understand. Dr. D.A. Carson said it this way, it brings us right to the boundary of what a limited creature's mind can comprehend about an infinite God. What John is teaching is that Eternally, there has been a self-existent nature that flows from the Father into the Son. That there was never a point where the Son was not being granted this self-existent nature from the Father. There was never a point where the Father did not have a Son that he was granting this. And there will never be a point where there will cease to be a Son that he grants this self-existent nature to. Now that is hard to wrap your head around because you are a time-bound creature yourself. 
It's hard to think about eternity. It's even harder to think about a self-existent being that doesn't derive itself from anything. And yet somehow for that self-existent being to send out another self-existent being. And yet this is what the scriptures teach. Friends, realize this is why the doctrine of the Trinity came to be. The Bible does not anywhere lay out for us in propositional logic the, the words that systematic theologians use for the Trinity. And yet, if you take the whole Bible seriously, that is the only way you can make sense of it. That there is one God, and yet that God somehow shares in substance with the three persons that are distinguishable from each other. We don't here have God being schizophrenic, talking to himself, loving himself. Now, these are distinguishable persons, and yet somehow for eternity past, there is a, a shared essence between them that allows them to be truly one. Growing up, there was a hill outside of the town I was in. Uh, the, the town I grew up in was called Weston because it was the furthest suburb west from Fort Lauderdale. And once you would go to the end of this one park, you would climb a levee and you would look out and that was the end of the developed world. As far as the eye can see from that point forward is just Everglades. I remember standing up there many times and just thinking like, how many alligators are eyeballing me at this moment, right? Uh, and it was, a, it was a boundary marker. You, you really didn't know what was out there. I certainly didn't have the ability to go out there. Um, as humanity, we're always trying to push the boundaries. Uh, just recently, NASA sent out, uh, reported back from one of the probes they had sent out that has gone further than any probe before. It's now t sending back pictures from over 4 billion miles away. New horizons, you can look it up. And yet, as far as that is, there comes a limit to how far we can see. We are creatures, and creatures only have so much runway before they're out. Our minds can only go so far, as, and that limit is provided by what God has revealed to us. This God has shown himself. God has shown himself to be one God who lives eternally as three persons. As hard as that is to wrap your head around, friend, the Bible teaches that it is true. And yet, the reason Jesus goes there is to set up his final astonishing claim, and that is his authority to judge the world. That's what we see in these last two verses, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, Jesus has already established that his role to judge was granted to him by the Father. That's what he showed us back in verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And, and then as he teased that out, he, he actually took us through Daniel 7. We don't have time to go there this morning, but uh, this figure that will rule and judge the world, the, the Son of Man. Uh, if you have time this afternoon, I, I recommend you, you read Daniel 7, 13 through 14. It's another way Jesus is establishing his authority for this role of judging. 
And yet, friends, what we are being drawn to is the reality of what that judgment will mean for us one day. Jesus says there is coming a day when every human being that ever existed will hear his voice. One day, Jesus will say, rise. And Carmen Valencia, my maternal grandmother who grew up in El Salvador, will come up from the grave and come to the judgment. One day, Jesus will say, rise. And Dr. Martin Luther King will rise from the dead and come and give an account to his maker. One day, Jesus will say, rise. And Abraham Lincoln, honest Abe, will come and he will find out just how honest he was. One day, Jesus will say to each of us, rise. And on that day, we will see the man Jesus Christ and we will give an account for what we have done on this earth. This will be simultaneously both the greatest day and the worst day in human history. As the prophets look forward to this day, they said it will be a day of deep darkness, not light. If you come to that day of judgment, the sound of Jesus' voice will not be good news. It will strike terror in the heart of those who have stood as an enemy of God. For on that day, they will stand before the one who sees perfectly. You know, in this life, we never get perfect justice. Even this week, a man who was caught after doing a horrible crime, he said this to those who caught him. He said, if I had just planned a little better, I would have gotten away with it. You know, for every one we catch, there are many more we don't. And yet, if there is a final justice, a final day, a final judge, then friends, no one really gets away with anything. For those of us who have fallen short of God's standards, which the Bible tells us are, is all of us, this is terrible news. And yet it's also the greatest news that any of us have ever heard. Because this one that we will stand before as judge is the one who offers to us the chance to know the judge beforehand and find preemptive pardon. This Jesus, the one who will judge the entire world, is the one who died for the world. This judge that we will give an account to is the one who gives us his perfect account of a perfect life. This judge who will make us pay for every sin is the one who paid for every one of our sins. If we'll just trust him and ask him to forgive us. Jesus looks forward to that great day. And he says he has been entrusted with the authority to judge the world. Friends, let me just submit to you that if Jesus does not actually have the authority to do these things he's claiming, that he is a world-class liar and he is cruel. Someone was talking about that guy from the how, uh, pretending to be an official from the Department of Housing and Urban Development and he said what this man did was not a joke. He was actually preying on those who were hurting. That What he did was actually the height of cruelty. If Jesus really cannot save, if Jesus really doesn't have the authority to pardon us on the final day, then all the wonderful things he said are completely useless to us 
And he is actually a world-class liar that has inflicted great harm. And yet, friends, if he has this authority, then no one else can help ruin sinners like him. That fraudster who claimed to be from the Department of Housing and Urban Development, he may not have been able to help anyone. And yet, back in 1863, there was a man who made an incredible declaration. Honest Abe, Abraham Lincoln, he made a declaration called the Emancipation Proclamation. January 1st, he said that all the slaves would be free. 34 million slaves with a stroke of his pen were declared free in the United States. Now, Abe Lincoln had, because of the war that had been fought, as well as the powers within the presidency, he actually had the authority to back up what he was claiming in that moment. As history would show, the slaves would be set free. Slavery would be abolished in America. It's an example of authority in action. A man who says something and has the authority to carry it out, and as a result, our very society changes. And yet, even for Abe Lincoln, there were limits, weren't there? I mean, tomorrow we will recognize the uh, ministry of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Because even with the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation, racism didn't go away. I mean, yes, the rules were adjusted. Yes, many of the evils were, were done away with. And yet, the reality of sinful human hearts remains. And yet, friends, what Abraham Lincoln couldn't do, what even Martin Luther King Jr. couldn't do, and what none of us can do, Jesus has full authority to do, to grant us spiritual life, to change us from God-haters to God-lovers, and to one day welcome us into his Father's kingdom as totally innocent before the judgment seat. We have every reason to trust this Jesus, not just because we take his word for it, but because he proved his authority through his credentials of the cross. Think about what the cross was. It was the vindication of everything Jesus claimed. He claimed that he was here to deal with our sin problem, and he proved it by shedding his blood. He claimed he was the son of God with authority to grant pardon for sins. And God proved that he was right by raising him from the dead. He claimed one day he would rule the whole world and judge it. And God proved he was right by raising him up into heaven to sit at the Father's hand. So why do we gather to worship? Why do we have reason for assurance in our salvation? Why do we have Reason that on the, the hope that on the final day we won't be greeted as enemies but as friends? Well, friends, it's because we believe Jesus' claims about himself are true and that he proved it at the cross. And in just a moment, we're going to come to a reminder he has built into our worship to remind us of the claims he's made and the grace we've received, we've received at the Lord's table. As we come to the Lord's table... We're reminded that we are sinners, that we are in need of grace, and that Jesus has provided all the grace that we need. Let's pray and prepare our hearts to come to the table together.